Uh, you did uh, see that Kirsten, Betty Ann, Isaiah, Hannah, and I are going to Guatemala. I thought maybe I'd explain that to you. Uh, there's a uh, denomination in Guatemala that has its annual conference. And so uh, I'm going to go and speak there. My son Isaiah is going to translate, also doing a devotion. Uh, Betty Ann, Kirsten, and my daughter Hannah are going to interact with the pastor's wives on Proverbs 31, as well as on how to train up the next generation to honor the Lord. So we leave uh, after church today to drive down to O'Hare and then to fly to Guatemala. So that's what that was about. Let's uh, go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for 2016. Probably a year for some that was filled with joy and for others that was not. We ask, Father, regardless of how 2016 was for us, that we, like Paul, would forget what lies behind and strain forward for what lies ahead. And that in 2017, we would be more faithful, more in love with you, more dependable, that you would see fit to use us in powerful ways for your glory. As we look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, remind us of biblical truths that we need to apply to our lives. We don't want to be hearers of the word only. We want to be doers as well. So take this text, apply it to us, encourage our hearts. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Kevin Miller was at the high school Pennsylvania State Track Championships. He was there with three of his teammates to run the 4 by 400 meter race. He got set to race. He was the first runner on his relay team. He was in lane number two, and he noticed in lane number one, there was John. He didn't really want to be next to John. John was not only the state 100-meter champion, he was the state 100-meter record holder. John looked at Kevin and said, may the best man win. I'll be waiting for you at the waiting line or the end line. Well, Kevin already was intimidated, and they got in their blocks. They got set. The gun went off. And John, that record holder, he took off like a shot. The other seven settled in behind at a reasonable pace and began to run. It was 400 meters after all. With about 180 meters to go, Kevin noticed that John was holding his side and was clearly out of breath. And all seven passed him. And Kevin, being the gentleman that he was, he waited for John at the finish line. A little later that day, his coach gathered him and the other three runners. He said, I hope you learned a lesson today. It doesn't matter if you're the 100-meter record holder. 
if the race is 400 meters long, the Christian race is 400 meters long. We've all known Christ followers who shoot out of the blocks. They come to Jesus. They're rightly filled with joy and energy. They involve themselves in all sorts of things, everything. In fact, they kind of think that they are God's gift to the church. And then shortly thereafter, whether months or a year or two, they begin to fade. The Christian life is not meant to be run in spurts. It's not meant to be run a little here and a little there. It's a long run. It's meant to be run with endurance. As I thought about endurance, I thought about an article that was written in 2007 in USA Today. It was written about three guys, Charlie Engel, Ray Zahab, and Kevin Lynn. They were ultra-marathonists. And these three, over 111 days, ran across the Sahara Desert. They ran from the sea of Senegal all the way to the Red Sea of Egypt, averaging a double marathon each day, if you can imagine. During the day, the heat was over 100 degrees. At night, it was often freezing. They were sick to their stomach. They had pulled muscles, sore muscles. They faced the elements, sandstorms, and the like. And yet in the end, they succeeded in crossing the Sahara Desert on foot. Kudos to these three. It's an incredible accomplishment. But it's not the only accomplishment out there. We might say well done to them, but we might also say well done to other long-distant runners. I think of a couple who have been faithful to one another all of their lives until death separates them. They've run the race well, well done. I think of an employee or an employer who in spite of pressure to maybe cut corners, they work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. Well done. I think of parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who for the next generation has set an example of how to live a Christ-centered life. Well done. I think of individuals who may have retired from their career jobs, but never retire from their work for the Lord and press on and press on and press on until God calls one home. Well done. I think of the single who guards his or her purity in spite of pressure in society until or unless one is called down the aisle to say, I do. And for that, such a person, we say, well done. The Christian life is a long distance run. It's not meant to be run in spurts. It's not meant to be for us to engage for a while and disengage for a while and then maybe engage again after a while. It's meant to be run consistently before God for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. 
I want to pick up and read today from a text familiar to all of us, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned the shame, and sat down at the right-hand throne of God the Father. The Bible begins with this idea of a Christian race. It's one of many metaphors used in Scripture to describe how you and I are to live the Christian life. If we had a little more time and we were believe it or not, fewer in number, I might say, what are some of the metaphors in the Bible that talk about how you and I are to live the Christian life? And you might say, well, we're called to be ready to engage in battle. You remember that we read in 1 Timothy 6.12 that we are to fight the good fight. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the armor of God. Philippians chapter 2 and Philemon tells us that we are Christian soldiers. And so there's all sorts of metaphors that relate to war. We also have a fair number of metaphors that relate to agriculture. I think of Matthew chapter 9, 37 and 38. It makes this statement, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out workers into his harvest field. John picks up a similar agricultural statement in John 15, 5, where he says, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We see something of being a bondservant. This is another metaphor Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 7.22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man, a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a slave or a bondservant of Christ. We're called to be stewards. That's another metaphor used in 2 Corinthians 4.2, we're called sheep and God is called the shepherd. The most famous of the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm, and John chapter 10. Matthew 5.13-16 tells us that we ought to be salt, we ought to be light. Salt gives a taste, a flavor, and we ought to give a taste or a flavor of Christ to the world And we ought to be light, the light of Christ in a dark world. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, it says that we are to be as innocent as doves and as crafty as serpents. Two more metaphors. 1 Peter chapter 2, 5 to 9, calls us royal priesthood. These are all metaphors that give us pictures of how you and I ought to live the Christian life. But the category of metaphor that is most often used in Scripture is that of an athlete. Would you expect anything else? Yeah. And so it begins in Hebrews 12, 
1 and 2. It talks about running with endurance the race that is set out before us, but it goes on to say that we are to run that race before a great cloud of witnesses. In fact, the text begins, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the weights and the sins that so easily entangle, etc. So how are we to run in front of these witnesses? And by the way, who are these witnesses? Well, the answer is actually given in chapter 11. Notice in chapter 12, it begins with, therefore, it's preceding the text. It's telling us to look back in the text. We remember that chapter breaks are something that were given to us by editors so that we can navigate our Bible well. And so we look back into chapter 11 and we're given the hall of faith. We're given some of those great women and men of old who lived honorable lives, God-centered lives as an example of how we too ought to run. And so we read of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph. We read of Moses and David and Samuel. And we read these names and sometimes we can't relate to them. Especially someone like Joseph that just seems to have his entire life all put together. But then we go on in the list and we read of people like Rahab and Samson. They made a mess of their lives. But towards the end, they got it together. They kept their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And they made the hall of faith. I don't believe that this list is complete. I think this list is illustrative of great women and men of the faith who have gone before us. I think it probably includes others. Maybe it includes Susanna Wesley, who raised 18 children to love the Lord, including John and Charles Wesley. Maybe it includes Katerina von Bora, who married Martin Luther and really had a lot to do with how great a man Martin Luther became. He was spurred on by his wife. I think of someone like Betsy and Corey Ten Boone, who hid a number of Jews from Nazi Germany and protected them. I think of Ann Dutton in the 1700s, a, a tremendous theologian and author who has written some very important works for us to read. Women and men who have gone before us. I think it might also include this hall of faith. Some of our loved ones who knew Jesus Christ, who know Jesus Christ, whose residence has changed, but they live for the Lord. And now they're in the amphitheater and we're on the ground. And when we're doing things that are honorable and pleasing to the Lord, they have the opportunity to see those and when we take a stand for Jesus, they rock the crowds. They, they rock the stands when we stand on the rock of Christ. And we have the opportunity to encourage them as they have encouraged us by how they live. So these are the great cloud of witnesses. And we're on the field and we're running the race. The race isn't always easy, is it? Sometimes as an athlete, we need to buffet our body no pain, no gain, a little bit of uh, work in the gym, a little bit of work on the track. And so the word for race, one of many available, is agona 
from which we derive the word agony. This doesn't mean the Christian life is always agony. In fact, Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But in order to gain, in order to advance the kingdom, sometimes there are sacrifices that Christ followers need to make with our time and our talents and our treasures. We sacrifice in order to advance the kingdom, which is what any athlete does in order to buffet her or his body in order to advance the strength or the endurance or the skill level to compete at the very highest of levels. Notice also, there's a racetrack. Sometimes we get in our minds this. We always have the right to choose what racetrack we're on. Oh, no, I don't want to do this. I'm not excited about engaging in that. I don't want to invest in those things. But the text actually says that he sets us on a racetrack. Some of the racetrack is perhaps not to our liking, and yet it is given to us. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Sometimes God sets the track before us. It might sound a lot like New Year's resolutions. There are so many to choose from, aren't there? Let me offer six from the Bible. Six racetracks that God has set before all of us that are part of the race that we ought to run. There's forgiveness. God may be leading us in our minds even now to remember somebody who we need to forgive. And we remember the example of Jesus in Luke 23. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't even know enough to ask for forgiveness. And yet Jesus extended it we are never more like Christ than when you and I offer forgiveness to others. Ephesians 4.32 puts it this way. Be kind. That's the word Christoi. Sounds a lot like being like Christ, doesn't it? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So one of the racetracks that God sets before us is the need to forgive others even sometimes when they haven't asked for forgiveness. I wonder what it would look like for a wife to forgive a husband or a husband to forgive a wife or parents to forgive a child or children to forgive a parent or a co-worker to forgive another co-worker or a neighbor to forgive a neighbor or a former friend to hand an olive branch, to restore a friendship. It's one of the racetracks that God sets before us. Another one is to care for the least of these. I think of 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I wonder who it is that the Lord might have us show acts of kindness and mercy to someone who cannot repay back. Yet another, a track that God has set before us, 
is sharing the gospel with others. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to one another. Or another is serving one another, caring for one another. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we ought to walk in them. So some of the racetrack that God has prepared beforehand for us is acts of service to care for one another. It also might be caring for the kingdom with the first fruits of our income. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Or I think fitting, we find 2 Timothy 2.15, which is a challenge for you and I to be in the word of God throughout 2017. And so we read this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This is the Awana theme verse. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We are called to rightly handle God's truth. So these are six possible ways, six possible tracks that God sets before us that we might run the race and run the race well. It stands to reason, however, that there might be some obstacles in the race. There always are, aren't there? And so the author of Hebrews gives us three of them. The first obstacle he's concerned with is my lack of endurance, my lack of perseverance, that I might treat the Christian walk as spurts, doing a little here, then taking a break, and doing a little there, and then taking a long break, and then maybe getting engaged again, or maybe not. He's worried about my endurance. As I thought about this, I thought about Eric, the swimmer, Musambani. Maybe you know the name, maybe not. You probably did at one time. He was an unlikely hero in the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Musambani came from Equatorial Guinea, a developing country, and there seems to be some rules in the Olympics that allow developing countries to send athletes to compete in events in which they really don't qualify in order to compete. In other words, they take lower standard numbers to expand the countries that can come to the Olympics. So Musambani decided he was a swimmer. He had picked up swimming six months earlier. He had only been in a 20-meter pool without any lanes. He didn't know much about swimming, but he was allowed into the event. In the first heat, which is always the heat for the slowest swimmers, he naturally was in it. There were two other swimmers. They were both disqualified. So he was the only guy in his heat. He had never swam a pool that was this long. In fact, this was two and a half times longer than any pool he had ever swam in in all of his life. 
the Associated Press said that it was quaintly cute how he swam. He flailed at the water. He never put his head under the water. And with about 10 meters to go, about 33 feet, he looked like he was going to drown and he stopped. It was at that moment that everyone in the aquatic center rose to their feet and began to cheer this man and clap and yell and spur him on, which caused him to go the last 10 meters. In French, as he was interviewed, he said that he would like to send out hugs and kisses to those in the stands because without their cheering, he could never, ever have finished. They became his cloud of witnesses. They spurred him on and he persevered. He swam further. He swam harder than he had ever swum before. And that's what God is calling us to do in 2017. He's calling us to swim harder and swim further and to do more for his kingdom than perhaps we have ever done before. He's concerned about my endurance. He's concerned about my perseverance. He knows one of the things that could cause me to give up is just a sense of discouragement. And so we need one another. We need to encourage one another on. We need to spur one another on. We need to look for those individuals that are on the edge of giving up or on the edge of sitting it out and encourage them to be engaged, to serve and to live and to honor the Lord and to go the last 10 meters or until the Lord calls us home. So that's the first of three concerns the author of Hebrews has as I run the race that is set before me. His second concern is about sin. He wants me to throw off the weight and the sin that so easily entangles me, and he wants me to run the race that is set before me. He's concerned about sin issues in my life. He's concerned about sin issues in yours. Again, how many possible sin issues could we talk about today? Tragically, none of us are strangers to sin, are we? Well, let me just mention a few possibilities. We could have taken many from Scripture. I'm going to offer four. Alcohol abuse and substance abuse. It's really hard to be a witness for Christ if we're tipsy or drunk or out of control. I trust that last night went very well for each of you. I'm a little more concerned about the 1030 hour, just saying it. But regardless of what happened last night, Philippians 4.13 says, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward for what lies ahead. That doesn't mean that when I sin, I just say, ah, it doesn't matter. That was yesterday. Today's a new day. Because we're called to confess and to repent, which means to turn from our sin. You remember what it says in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler. And those who are led astray by them are unwise. And so when we think of 
these kind of issues, we're told never to abuse or misuse them. Second, I think of immorality. Immorality is one of those sins that causes us to take our eyes off the Lord and onto something else, whether it's sleeping with one's girlfriend or boyfriend or an extramarital affair or anything like that. You remember Psalm 66, 18. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. And so again, we want to keep short accounts with the Lord and confess and in the power of his spirit turn from our sin. The third is explosive anger and rudeness, emotional dishonesty. Let me read from Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29 uh, verse 11. It says this, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Sometimes we're around individuals who say, you know what, that's just who I am. I'm real. I speak my mind. I, I let you know what's on my heart. I'm not fake. What does the text say? A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So a wise man doesn't feel the need to always share what's on his heart or his head. A wise man realizes that they can be real without being rude or obnoxious or mean-spirited. And finally, a, a sin that so easily entangles all of us is materialism in a materialistic world. Jesus said in, uh, I think it was, I can't remember now, <laughs> Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We need to use his creation in wise ways rather than worshiping his creation. We worship God and we use the creation for his glory. So what could keep me from running the race that is set before me? Well, it could be a lack of endurance or perseverance. It could be sin, the weight that I need to throw off that so easily entangles me. Or it could be that I don't keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and scorned, or hooked on the scorn, and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. What does it mean for me to keep my eyes on Jesus? How do I keep my eyes on Jesus? Well, it means that I'm all about reading his word, knowing his word, and living his word. Let's stick with the metaphor that the author gives us. He gives us the metaphor of running a race. Now, I don't know a lot about running races. Some of you know a lot more than I do. When I was in junior high and high school, I ran cross country, not because I would ever win, I never did, but in order to uh, prepare for wrestling season. That's why I ran. I didn't care about running, I cared about wrestling. And so I ran. And in upstate New York, at that time, cross-country races were 6.4 miles. And they were across golf courses, through woods, through cow pastures. 
and you needed to keep your eyes on what is in front of you. If you're running through your woods and you're not keeping your eyes on what's in front of you, you go splat right into a tree. If you're running through a cow pasture and you're not keeping your eyes on the ground, you might run into a cow pie, and that's an unpleasant thought. So you keep your eyes on the prize, and the prize is glorifying God. And so to keep your eyes on Jesus means to corporately worship. It means to be a part of a smaller Bible study like a connection care group or a Sunday school class. It means to be in devotion. It means to be in prayer. That's how we keep our eyes on Jesus. And so we think, uh, along with the psalmist in Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. In Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so we begin a new year, 2017. It's a great opportunity for all of us. And in 2017, we want the amphitheater to rock the stands when we take a stand on the rock of Christ. We want to run with perseverance, not in fits and spurts, but really run with perseverance, the race that is set before us, the race that God has chosen for us. We want to cast off the sin that so easily entangles us and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I think of the doxology in Romans eleven thirty two. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That ought to be the cry of our hearts for 2017. Let's pray. Father God, uh, it's a lot easier to talk about running the race than to run it. It's a lot easier to consider the things that would trip others up than what would trip us up. Father, perseverance is hard. And empowered by your Spirit, giving up our pet sins is hard. And keeping our focus on your Son, Jesus, it's hard. And we ask that you would empower us to do so. And may we encourage the cloud of witnesses. And may we be part of the cloud of witnesses, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And may 2017 be the most complete year of honoring and glorifying you that we have ever had. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.